Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is Season 3, Episode 17. And I'm kind of upset today because Weather Underground lied to me yesterday. We've been enjoying 70-degree weather for at least the last 10 days, um, maybe 60s on occasion. It's been pretty pleasant. It's been absolutely gorgeous with some quite a bit of rain. Um, and that looked like it was the same on the forecast for the next <laughs> 10 to 15 days as well. Um, but this morning, I left my house and it was in the 70s. But the 10 minute drive to work, by the time I get there, the temperature had dropped 10 to 15 degrees and now it's in the in the 50s again. So I don't know what happened with Weather Underground's forecasting, but it was not very good. <laughs> and I was not prepared for this kind of weather, did not dress for it. So I'm a little upset and a little more wary. So I'm going to be checking those lows and I may have to move my tomatoes inside for the night. We'll just have to see. But I don't know. It seems like the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest and had a bit of a snow and winter kind of weather after a bit of uh, nice weather. So it's February. I think everybody's ready for winter to be over. We get these nice times of teases of of spring and then boom, winter is like, just kidding. I'm not over. We're still here. (laughs) So I thought we were going to be home free and I'm still hoping we are home free. I don't think North Texas is home free. I saw someone with snow and ice on the west side of Fort Worth. So they're definitely not home free today. But I'm hoping we are home free from all of that. Maybe this is just a little blip, going to cool off a little, warm right back up because I'm already, (laughs) I'm already in summer mode and spring mode and get things growing mode. So I have a lull in guests at the moment. So it's going to be just me again for this episode. And if you remember my episode from January, I talked about a seed order from Botanical Interests. This is going to be a different kind of seed order. This is a native plant seed order. And um, the only reason I did this was because I listened to this podcast called the Native Plant Podcast. And if you don't listen to that one, you're missing out. I've learned a lot from listening to that podcast since it came out two years ago. And I think one of the best things about doing this podcast in general is that I've learned a lot about different designers and gardeners and growers and just plant geeks out there that I wouldn't have found otherwise. It's kind of one thing to read about some of these people in magazines or books and they feel like uh, beyond our reach in a way. And with podcasts, when they come on the podcast, not necessarily the Night of Plant podcast, but other ones as well, you kind of get to know them a little bit more. They feel a little bit more down on your level, even though you definitely know they're still way above your level, horticulturally at least, but it feels like you can kind of get to know them, which there's actually an interesting NPR article that I'll link to that kind of talks about this, about this feeling that the people in your earbuds, you kind of get to know them, even though in reality, they don't know anything about you. And I, I feel that on both sides as a podcaster and a podcast listener. So as a podcaster, I don't, I mean, I don't know, but a handful of my audience for the vast majority. And, you know, I only get a snippet of understanding of who downloads podcast episodes that doesn't include like who just hits play and iTunes or on my website or wherever. And as my, as far as my interactions with, you know, I only, some people, and this is okay because I'm the same way. I don't necessarily reach out to every podcast I listen to either. (laughs) And that's on the podcast side, listening side is that's the same way is that 
I'm not necessarily interacting. I'm a passive listener, taking in all this information. So anyway, I thought that was interesting, the NPR article and how it kind of relates to how I feel as a listener of other podcasts and uh, getting to know other gardeners in that manner. So anyway, the Native Plant Podcast had Ian Catone or Caton, um, I can't remember the pronunciation correctly, of Wood Thrush uh, Native Plant Nursery in Virginia. And after I listened to that episode, I was kind of like, hmm, go poke around his website and see what he has. And sure enough, he has quite a bit of plants for sale as well as seeds. And he has limited shipping timeframes, I think April and May and maybe September, October. And I just kind of wanted to hold off on plants for the moment. So I, I went through and I looked at seeds that I wanted to order. And honestly, I thought they were super affordable. They were $2 a packet and all of the, the seed packets had you know an abundance of seeds with them. So, and some of them, you know, I'm sure he had to kind of estimate because they're teeny, teeny, teeny little seeds that you're not going to be going, he doesn't need a microscope to count them out on some of them because they're just like powder. But I went through and kind of looked at seeds that I wanted to add to my garden and things that would go in our right of way, which is like a sandier area. And definitely, you know, it only gets rainwater. Um, occasionally we'll put some water out there, especially if we've just thrown some seeds out there, if it's been dry. And then some seeds that I wanted to, for our pond shoreline to kind of diversify that a little bit. And so I thought that was awesome. And I also wanted to kind of look for seeds that fit, I'm in Eco Region 231, and just more of that East Texas music, hardwood, piney woods kind of feel, <laughs> which can be hard. And Texas is such a huge state that we have so many different types of habitats that if you're looking for a native plant, it's not necess- it may not necessarily be native to your region. So we do have, I think it's Native American seeds out in Junction, and they do have some seeds, and we have bought from them before. But sometimes I feel like they're more driven for Central Texas or West Texas or the High Plains, not necessarily a wetter music or just plain wet <laughs> zone like I'm in. So that's kind of why I thought checking out his seeds would be interesting. And some of them actually don't actually even grow in our state. They grow maybe some have extended as far west as Louisiana, but others did grow in the state. But I was like, yeah, you know, I am not a specifically eco-region or localized native plant person. As you've heard, some of my podcast guests are. I I like to grow other things too, <laughs> but I do want to grow things that are that are typically native to maybe this type of habitat, but maybe just further east or further north. So I'm okay with including that. That's just my personal preference. And, you know, I obviously grow tropical plants too. So you can tell where I come from there. <laughs> but I did want to, I did want to branch out on the native plants. So what I thought today, I would kind of cover about nine different seeds and um, cover some of them. And maybe you'll want to grow some uh, yourself. And I think I'm definitely going to pop back into his shop when it gets closer to April and possibly buy a few more plants and look at some other native seeds online as well. I guess actually, let me preface all of this before I go into reading the seed descriptions. All of his seeds came with a caveat to cold stratify them for a minimum of 60 days. Now I've stratified other, um, mostly milkweed. My husband has done some other stuff before. I can't remember what kind of success he's had 
you know, germinating them after. But the milkweeds I have have cold stratified have pretty much always germinated. And I've done them for about 30 days usually and sometimes longer because I've forgotten them in the bottom of my fridge crisper. And if you're not familiar with cold stratification, it's pretty much like pretending it's winter (laughs) for the seeds, giving them that touch of cool that some seeds need to germinate in the spring or summer. So like now I bought my seeds in February. I'm not going to get anything cold again till next November or December. So I'm going to pretend that it's winter in my fridge for 60 days. And so I took a paper towel and kind of wetted it, squeezed out the excess water, and then put the seeds, you know, handful, whatever amount I wanted on that paper towel, folded it over, slid it into a sandwich size plastic baggie and, you know, wrote on there what it was, the date, so that way I knew in in April when I'm going to take them out that what they are. And a couple of them, I'm actually, because they're those powdery fine seeds, I'm kind of like, I don't know how I'm going to get them off the paper towel at that time. That's going to be an interesting feat. But so I did that because I had enough seed in the packets for most of them. I kept some seed aside and I went ahead and I'm going to try germinating some of them without cold stratifying because I know it's going to work on some of them because sometimes that happens. And I know some of them are going to be yelling at me and sitting there doing nothing because they're going to be like, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not going to germinate. You're not giving me the right conditions, but I went ahead and tried it. And then I have a couple extra of other stuff that I am just going to throw out in the, and like I said, in the right of way, because eventually they'll germinate whether or not they do this year or later on, just going to throw them out there. And then whatever extra, if I do have success germinating them, I'm just going to keep them and, you know, germinate more plants later on. So it's kind of what I'm doing. I thought I had enough seeds to go ahead and just experiment, I guess. Okay, well, I don't know. There wasn't really a rhyme or reason to the seeds I chose, but like I said, I wanted to look for shady plants for the most part, stuff that would handle a wetter, mesic soil conditions. And I did try to look for things that were deer resistant. I know I did pick some stuff that's not necessarily deer resistant, but the first one is called Aconitum incinatum. And again, as I pronounce these scientific names, I'm sure I probably pronounce them differently than somebody else, but you know, it's botanical Latin. Eh, you can be a little bit liberal with the pronunciation. So that is Southern Blue Monkshood. And it has, I was really drawn to it because it was cute. I guess, I don't know, cute's the right word. It was pretty, pretty purple, blue flowers kind of vining like, but not like crazy wild. It looks like it's like a compact kind of vine. And so his seed description says part to full shade, fertile, moist soil resembling a vine in habit. And the plant sends several slender arching stems to five feet or more, and they can lean or support on other plants. And says violet ultramarine, ultramarine blue flowers resemble an ornate hood and are about one inch across with thick leaves and three to five lobes. And they are naturally found in like low woods and damp slopes, but you could use them in gardens, ponds, or stream margins. And they bloom July to September and, you know, zones five to eight, but 
drives me nuts when I don't see zone nine on stuff because you can grow some plenty of stuff in zone eight that grows in zone nine. So the Mount Cuba Center had a little more information and I'm going to read what it says about it. It says, as the growing season comes to a close with the approach of autumn, there's one more surprise awaiting the gardener. Climbing monkshood with its deeply lobed leaves and brilliant blue purple hooded flowers burst into flower in mid-September. And twining delicately delicately through shrubs, this shade-loving twining perennial is a great addition to the late season garden. That sounds pretty cool to me. I wouldn't mind having some late season blooms. I definitely like fall blooming plants. So that sounded really interesting. The next plant is Asclepius exaltata, and that's poke milkweed. And I'm trying to grow a variety of milkweeds because, hey, we're a Monarch Way Station now. My husband registered us as a Monarch Way Station with Monarch Watch. So now I'm a Way Station, and after raising all the Monarchs last year, you know, I grew a ton of tropical milkweed. I have had random successes with swamp milkweed and tuberosa, but... Swamp milkweed always fades. I It never comes back. Tuberosa has been coming back, but it's very, like, slow growing. Like, I'm not getting big plants quite yet. I'm hoping this year that maybe they'll take off and produce a little bit better. But I wanted something else that would grow well. And this looked like it was a milkweed that's, that would handle my kind of habitat and produce enough plants that I would be able to feed monarchs. So... It also grows in part shade, moist, rich soil. Um, it's a tall species with loose spreading umbels of green and ivory flowers and a long tapering oblong leaves. Um, the flower heads are reminiscent in form of exploding fireworks. And it does kind of look like that based on the pictures. They look like exploding fireworks as they're falling down out of the sky. It grows to six feet and they bloom June to July. And I looked there, southeastern and eastern U.S., extending mid to the Midwest and Canada does not actually incur in Texas, but you know, again, I'm playing with my zone here. <laughs> yeah. Two to six feet and, but they can exceed six feet and favorable conditions. Sounded like a cool plant to me. And I did go ahead and put all of those seeds in cold stratification because I do know that with my other milkweed seeds I've had in the past, that's the best way to go for germination. Now, the next plant is Ringium aquaticum water snake root, and I bought this specifically so we could put it on our pond edge. I think it could possibly work in our flower garden, and maybe I'll put a plant there and just see how it works, but this is expressly for um, our pond, and it, if you're familiar with Ringium jacopholium, that's the other snake root, and it's a prairie plant. So this is a aquatic version. So it needs sun and average to wet sandy or mucky soil. And it's a short-lived perennial, which occurs in coastal swamps and floodplains. So it has strappy leaves that grow into tall six-foot uh, stalks, steely blue-gray flowers that attract lots of pollinators. And it seeds heavily, but it needs open soil for them to germinate to replace the parent plant. So it grows three to six feet, blooms July to September, uh, zones five to 10. And I did look on the USDA plants database and is definitely a coastal area plant from the very Southeast. I think maybe Alabama to Florida, Georgia, up the kind of Eastern seaboard to maybe the Carolinas. So 
it did not seem to be seen in the interior states. So, and I think I may have even heard on the Native Plant Podcast they talk about it being in salt marshes. So that'll be interesting to try. I'm definitely interested, at least with, you know, if, the, if they, if it's a short-lived perennial, I'll have to be saving seeds for previous year, for following years, probably to try to germinate again. And we're, we're actively working on trying to clean up our pond margin because we have a lot of elephant ears, uh, the Colocasia esculenta that are non-native and they kind of choke out all the other vegetation. My husband's been really working on that the last couple of years in sections and trying to eliminate that. So hopefully we'll have some more open space to put in some of these native plants and let them thrive a little bit. Okay, the next one is Coreopsis pubescens, star tick seed. And this is going to be a drier zoned plant. It says, cheerful yellow flowers to brighten a shady woods edge. It's a non-stoloniferous Coreopsis that grows in moist to dry woodlands, edges, meadows, and floodplains. So one to three feet tall with bright yellow flowers from June to August. And it self-seeds to form sparse colonies in wild places. The Missouri Plant Foundation says it's a season-long bloomer in bright, bright, partly shaded locations, and it's a great species to add yellow color in. Looks like it's tolerant of a lot of different kinds of soil types, and I'm going to probably put some in the flower garden, and I think this is one of the ones I may throw out into the right-of-way as well to see how it will grow. I am a Gallardia fan, and so I could not help myself to get the Gallardia Aestivalis, variety Aestivalis, which is the landsleaf blanket flower. And this is a coastal, this is something that definitely grows in Texas, but in the more far eastern margin. So, uh, so it's common through the Gulf Coast states in this perennial, but it's cold, cold tolerance is untested. So I don't really know, maybe may not work for people in the Midwest or far north. And it's a late summer bloom on wispy stems in dry, sandy, or stony meadows. And it looks like it has brown globes that seem to float in the garden. grows one to two feet tall. And yeah, it's central Texas, Louisiana, scattered throughout the southeast, maybe Oklahoma, Kansas, maybe not too much further north than that. And I'm definitely going to put some in the right-of-way because it is a drier area, and that's Gallardia seems to thrive in those drier spots. And then I will also put a couple in the flower beds and see how they do. this next one, I actually <laughs> came across an actual plant of this gentian saponaria, support gentian, at our local plant nursery uh, last week. And I've never seen it there. Or if I have, I didn't really put two and two together or really understand what it was. Um, so I was kind of excited to see that. But, you know, I think it was in a gallon pot and it was eight or ten dollars for the single plant. So, you know, I have, you know, quite a bit of seeds, so I'm hoping I can get this to germinate and have a bunch of different plants. It's a really cool looking plant and it takes sun to light shade, average to moist sandy loamy soil, and it sees it's one of the easiest gentians to grow due to its upright and robust nature. And it's light blue flowers that appear in September and October on one to two feet tall plants. And uh, Illinois Wildflowers says the perennial plant is one the half to two feet tall 
and is unbranched. It's like light green or reddish central stem is slender and smooth and has hairless veins. And the cultivation prefers full or partial sun, moist to music soil, and often grows in sandy soil, but will tolerate all kinds of soil, including fertile loam. So seems like it could be a variety of places you could grow at. Uh, it's also considered a bumblebee special plant, so pollinator friendly, definitely a plus. And maybe native habitats are in moist depressions, margins of woodland creeks and ponds. All right, my next plant is Swamp Saxifrage, Saxifraga pensylvanica. And I also bought this for going along our pond edge. So it's going to take part sun to light shade, wet to average sandy soil. And it's a bold foliage plant for swampy soils containing some sand or seepy sandstone bluffs. Adapts fairly well to moist garden soils with light shade. It has large lettuce-like leaves emerge in the spring, following shortly by a tall stalk of green and white flowers, loved by small bees and other beneficial insects. Grows two to three feet tall. So it blooms in May to June, and it looks like it's from the Mid-South to Upper South through New England, maybe the Midwest through Minnesota with its natural habitat. So not so much my lower portion of the U.S. So I'm curious how well it's going to do, but I was worth, thought it was worth a try. Yeah, it just looks like a neat little plant to have along the pond edge. It looks like something you would find in bogs. I don't know. It looked cool. <laughs> and the next one is Cinna Marilandica, also called Wild Cinna. And I bought this specifically for the cloudless sulfur caterpillars because I use them <laughs> they use my Argentine Senna, and I thought I would try to, you know, bring some native plants in and something else for them to forage on. And so I'm going with this. It is a full sun to light shade, and it definitely gets shrubby, and it's two to five feet tall. And all the photos I saw online definitely seem like it could get two to five feet wide. So I'm going to have to find a spot it can take up some space in the garden. It's once rich, moist soil, and it's similar to Cassia or, I guess, Cinna herbicarpa, except shorter and the seed pods are smoother. So this one is actually definitely prominent throughout Central Texas, widespread throughout the eastern half of the United States. Open, and it's found naturally in open woods, wet meadows, and I just know it, I know it has beautiful yellow flowers, and it's also a plant that's special for bumblebees, too, so... Anything I can do to add more nectar for butterflies and bees, the better, I think. Okay, now the last plant is Silene stellata, or starry campion. And we have a silene here, a scarlet catchfly. It is locally endemic and locally rare that we are that we do grow in our garden and we do have to fend off the deer from it so I'm kind of worried about this one being also a a deer favorite so starry campion is a delicate wispy perennial that grows in sandy acidic soils clearings and wet edges part shade is preferred though it can tolerate some sun soils should be well drained and has white frilly flowers appearing in June to July on three to four foot tall stems and the ecotype that 
they grow apparently can have purplish leaves and stems, and this is a West Virginia ecotype, but it's definitely widespread throughout most of the eastern U.S. I think there was a couple spots of it in Louisiana, but not as far west as Texas. For in, on the Illinois web, Wildflowers website, it says preference is light shade or partial sun, music to dry conditions, and soil containing loam, clay loam, or little rocky material. I guess when exposed to full sunlight, it can have yellowish green leaves that are maybe not as cool looking. Yeah, it just looks like a neat little flower. It has, like I said, it says white, really, really frilly flowers. <laughs> that would be a nice addition to uh, the garden. All right, well, those are the nine plants that I bought, the nine seeds, and I'm hoping I have some good germination. We'll see what happens with the ones that are on the potting bench, if they do germinate early or not. Crossing my fingers that a couple do at least, so I have some kind of <laughs> a hit of, of good feeling there, um, but then I'm going to have to wait till April to, before I sow any of the others, and we'll just I'll keep you posted. You can check me on Instagram at the Garden Path Podcast, and I may even update on my website, oceanicwilderness.com. I do blog posts uh, fairly frequently of my garden. So you can pop over there in uh, late April or May um, if I get any germination for that as well. And I may update you guys on a future episode how successful I have been with that. So if you have any questions, shoot me an email at thegardenpathpodcast at gmail.com. You can drop by thegardenpathpodcast.com. And don't forget to hit subscribe and rate and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else you listen. All right. Hope you guys have a great week.